You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now to learn and to, to see where it is that we live and how we're called to live in this world, in this moment, faithfully. So God, we confess that we often assume the meaning of our lives. We often assume how things ought to go. Far too often, uh, we've simply bought into lies and believed them. And so God, we ask now that you would take up your word, that your spirit would wield the word. Even as this text describes your spirit wielding this word, um, God, that we might see rightly, that we might know rightly, that, that we might be convicted of sin We might be convicted of places of treasonous disloyalty to you. And God, that we might be called to faithfulness in this moment. And God, for those who are here in this room and do not know you, who do not believe in you, who do not worship you, God, we pray that this word would come as a word of grace and a word of power. A word of grace for the forgiveness of sins and the bringing of life and a word of power to raise the dead. So in your name we pray, amen. Last week we kicked off a four-week series uh, establishing and trying to study and think about from the scriptures how God has called us to live in this particular city and in this particular moment, um, given the cultural movements and shifts um, that we've seen unfold over the last um, several decades, but even most pointedly um, in the last several years. And we just want to acknowledge right off the bat two fundamental things. One, that things feel different right now. But the circumstances aren't that different right now. Um, They feel different and then it it seems like um, that there is more open hostility to, um, say, Christian ethics or even a Christian foundational kind of biblical understanding of how the world works and how history works. The nature of salvation, the nature of sin, the nature of justice. Um, All of these things have been um, no longer simply kind of, hey, those Christians over there believe these odd things, but increasingly it feels like there's open hostility to those things. That to believe the things that the Bible says, to believe the things that Christians have generally believed for centuries, um, uh, for millennia, um, is to, in fact, be a bigot, to to be evil. It's no longer simply kind of a, a privately held religious set of religious beliefs, Um, that certain kinds of people hold, odd people like us, Um, but rather it's now um, looking at this kind of list of beliefs, kind of generally things that Christians have always believed and saying those things are actually fundamentally evil, they're fundamentally unjust, they're bigoted, um, whatever the case may be. And that hostility has gone from um, kind of maybe underneath the surface to seemingly be um, more front and center in our culture. Um, What it feels like in this moment, notice the emphasis I'm placing on feeling um, versus objective reality, but what it feels like to be faithful right now is different. For for some of you, it might be harder to to stand and to believe and to say and to live in the light of all the scriptures teach in every single part of your life, whether that's work um, or with your neighbors or with maybe even with family members. It seems harder, more hostile, more volatile. 
But, but I, I would hold out to you as we move to Ephesians 6 that, that the circumstances have not changed. That it feels harder, I think, in part because many of us have been deceived. Many of us have, have been discipled into a, a really misguided understanding of what faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ entails in all places and at all times. Um, we'll talk more about that in a minute. This morning I was to begin by considering St. Boniface. If you'll look at the front of your worship guide, there's a picture, a very dim picture, St. Boniface. This is a better picture of St. Boniface. St. Boniface was a missionary sent to the German tribes, and St. Boniface um, and those who traveled with him as missionaries uh, to see the gospel go forward among these tribes um, began to teach the gospel, they began to brew beer, um, and which those always go together, um, and, and they began to proclaim uh, who Jesus was and what it meant to just believe in him and to be converted to him. And they began to see among the pagans um, a handful of converts, um, those who would uh, forsake their paganism, um, the paganism of the German tribes centered around animal sacrifices and worshiping around trees, um, particular trees. Um, the particular tribe that uh, Boniface went to um, worshiped the oak of Jupiter. It's a very imposing tree, the oak of Jupiter. Um, and so uh, these um, converts came uh, to worship Jesus with Boniface. Um, they began to notice a problem. Um, something kind of unfolded in this missionary work. First, um, there were those among the pagans who refused to worship Jesus, who refused to be converted to Christianity, um, who loved worshiping the oak, who, who loved kind of their paganism, and, and they began to revile and hate the Christians. There was open hostility. Um, second, there were those um, who converted to Christianity, um, but either because of a genuine confusion or more often than not, a desire to kind of bridge that hostility or that conflict, maintained certain practices associated with the Oak of Jupiter and would show up for communion and Christian worship. And so you had this first group openly hostile to everything Christian. You had a second group who had ostensibly converted to Christianity but maintained kind of a foot in both camps. I'm trying to kind of bridge over, cover over the hostility between loyalty to Jesus and the practices associated with worshiping at the Oak of Jupiter. And then third, you had a third group, those who had been fully converted to Jesus, led by St. Boniface. This went on for a while, and then Boniface did something. <laughs> I love this story. Now, I know what you would expect maybe is maybe Boniface goes and Kills the priest of the Oak of Jupiter. After all, he's leading this, um, this rebellion against the rule of Jesus. He's misguiding and misleading all of these people. He's creating this open hostility and persecution against the Christian church. But Boniface did not go and kill the priest of the Oak of Jupiter. You might think he would come up with strict, mean rules to kind of get all of those who maintain the worship of the Oak of Jupiter. He might beat them up or 
Make it hard for him to say you guys can't have any of our beer, um, whatever that might be. But he didn't do that. No, he did something entirely different. No, um, what St. Boniface did is he went to the Oak of Jupiter with a crowd of Christians singing, gathering towards them was the pagans who were coming to worship at the Oak of Jupiter. And what did Boniface do? He chopped down the Oak of Jupiter. This is fantastic. It's fantastic for a number of reasons, not the least of which is it makes for a really good story, um, and secondly, it makes for a really good painting. But it also makes for a really good story because it illustrates for us one of the foundational things at play for us in Ephesians chapter 6. What does it mean to live life in this age, in this day, and more particularly in this city at this moment? What should we expect? Last week we saw that Jesus calls us to live. He prays for us and he calls us to live um, not outside of the world, but rather in the midst of the world, even, and he prays this, knowing that the evil one is active and at work in this world, which means that we're going to be constantly finding ourselves, we saw this last week, living in this tension of needing to cling to the promises of Jesus, to the name of Jesus, even while being surrounded by um, the temptations, the wiles, the tricks of the evil one. He doesn't call us to go and kind of form our own private communities up in the mountains, little weird militias um, where we grow our own food and we don't associate with the bad people. No, he calls us to live right smack dab in the midst of culture, in the midst of city, in in the midst of cities, in the midst of unbelief. He calls us right to this place. This is Jesus. Now, what can we expect it to be like here? And what does faithfulness look like as we live in this moment? I think Ephesians 6 sets us up to understand that as clearly as any other place in scripture. Kind of unfold you for you kind of where things have been in Ephesians. It's really, really important. Um, The first couple of chapters of Ephesians, Paul expounds for us some of the most beautiful, glorious, I mean, this is just some of the highest places in scripture are to be found in Ephesians chapter one and two and three. That God has saved us, that he's redeemed us, um, that he has cleansed us, that he has given us a destiny and a hope all in Jesus Christ. Um, That he grounds our whole identity as human beings, not in our own strengths, not in our own righteousness, but but in the work of Jesus on our behalf, a work that was predestined by God before the foundation of the world, and that he chose us in him, that he's called us in him. And in Ephesians 2, he's brought us from death to life in order that we might walk in all of the good works that he's called us to. And then in chapter 3, he begins to outline over the next um, 3, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6, what are those good works that he's called us to? He begins with the life of the church, this life in which we're being built together in this room into the dwelling place of God on the earth, which is a shocking thing for me, standing here looking out at you. That's a joke, kind of a mean joke, but it was a joke. That God is taking all of us and knitting us together into a temple, a living temple where God himself dwells, where his name is. Then he moves into what that life has to look like together because 
Some of you are going to bug others of you, annoy each other. Some of you are going to sin against each other. Some of you are going to um, um, do all kinds of stuff. And yet God calls us to love one another, to care for one another, to be knit together as one. Then he moves into chapter 5 and he begins to describe basic humanity, basic human life as a, a fruit of the work of Jesus. So he talks about marriage, a husband and a wife brought together in covenant in which a husband is to represent in the midst of the world and particularly to his wife um, the, the love, the care, um, the, the, the nurture of Jesus for his church. Or a wife is to represent in the midst of the world and particularly to her husband um, the glory and the submissiveness and the, the joy of the church. And he moves on to begin to talk about um, kids. So you have marriage, you have raising children, raising children in light of, as a, a fruit of the work of Jesus in the cross. And then he goes and begins, talks about servants and masters and the, the nature of our work and how to live our life in the world around three just basic fundamental callings of human beings. Most of you in this room should pursue marriage. Most of you in this room should pursue having children. Most of, well, all of you, to one, to one degree or another, should pursue working with your hands, bearing, being fruitful in this world. This is essential um, to, to what not only God has done and restored for us in Jesus, but what it means to be made in the image of God, what we're called to do and to be in this world. Now, as we do that, he then situates that kind of life, that seemingly normal kind of life, faithful to Jesus, hard work, exhausting, oftentimes very difficult relationships, whether that's with a spouse or with children or with people in the church or just people out in the city. In the midst of all of that, he frames it for us now in language that I think many of us would be uncomfortable with. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle. Read here, we do not wrestle. We do not battle. We do not fight against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Point one. You are at war. The basic orientation of the Christian life is conflict. The normal Christian life is marked by battle, by conflict, by warfare, by wrestling. I don't think 
We understand that. You are not living in peacetime. But war is not the exception to where you live now. It is instead the norm. Notice. He does say we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against. The verb there is carried over from the first clause. But we do wrestle against. We do battle against. We do wage war against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. In this first point, I want to look at just a couple of things. The first thing I want us to to consider is that there are two deficiencies I think we need to address for most Christians' discipleship. First, many of us have been raised in a world that has lied to us over and over and over again. And oftentimes not on the face of it, but it's buried the lie everywhere. And that lie is that there can be peace between secularism and the worship of God. In other words, there's been a lie perpetrated. Um, I remember it being told this way in history classes um, that prior to the advent of the Enlightenment and secularism, people killed each other over religion. Ha 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 ha. Those foolish idiots. We now have attained peace, but we no longer kill each other over religion because we now have relegated religion to your own private belief. We can all live together in a world in which God is, and this is the part that goes unspoken, irrelevant. Which the worship of God is irrelevant. It might help you personally. It might not help your neighbor personally. So you do you. If you find it personally fulfilling, great for you. boy. We over here, we don't worship God. But there is, there can be peace now. That peace occurs because we treat God as largely unnecessary for most of the things that most people do in life. Implicit in that kind of story about the world, which is a story that exists everywhere, is the idea that God is so unimportant God's words are so unimportant. The worship of God is so unimportant. It largely has nothing to do with your relationships, has nothing to do with your work. It has nothing to do with, really, with marriage. It has almost nothing to do with raising children. It has almost nothing to do with your finances. It has almost nothing to do with your schedule. It has almost nothing to do with anything that matters in life in a secular age. Second, that's then led us to a terrible misunderstanding of the ministry of Jesus. That we have painted Jesus as kind of a nice, 
quaint pacifists. Not picking fights anywhere, going around being nice all the time. And he was put to death because he was so darn nice. Like there were people in Jerusalem that hated how nice he was and they killed him. Like if you ran into Mr. Rogers, like this guy is annoyingly nice. Let's kill him. So that becomes kind of the story of Jesus. He floats around everywhere being nice to everybody. And then the mean Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests and Romans, they didn't like nice people. It's a terrible time to be nice. They would kill all the nice people. And so Jesus was the nicest of them all. And so he's killed. What that misses is that the whole orientation of Jesus' ministry is one of conflict. Everywhere he goes, he creates conflict. Everywhere he goes, he creates a dividing line. He divides crowds. He even goes among those um, who, who, who seemingly, they want, they want him to teach them. Um, he, he, they want him to be, they even want to forcibly make him king. They want to drag him to Jerusalem and put him on a throne. And over and over and over again, in every context in which he steps, he divides the room. I mean, it's, it's hilarious at times. Um, you, you, you see him... For instance, he goes back to Nazareth. They invite him to, um, to speak at the synagogue. So he's like, you know, it's like you going back home to your home church and you're kind of a, maybe you're a great teacher. And so um, the, the old ladies from the Sunday school class ask you to stand up and to read the Bible and to say something. So Jesus stands up, reads the scriptures, he says something, um, and then everyone's literally saying in the text, like, oh, this is... This is jo- I remember jo- this is Joseph's son. This is Mary. Remember him? Like this is the guy. I remember when he was little. I knew he was going to be great. So you think here he's going to get the whole church, this whole synagogue, to follow him? But what does he do? He keeps talking. And when he keeps talking, what happens next? They drag him out of the synagogue and try to throw him off a cliff. Like, this is Jesus. Like, everywhere he goes, um, he, 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 he creates conflict. He creates division. He, he, he goes and he splits every single room he steps into. And somewhere along the line, we began to think of Jesus as being killed for being nice when he's killed because he's, he's divisive. He's totalizing in his claims. He offended Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests. One of the most shocking things in the New Testament, if you know anything about first century history, is that those three groups would agree about anything. You know what the one thing they agreed on was? Jesus has to die. Other than that, they wanted to kill each other. But they agree about that. And so we've bought into this idea, that, that this secular ideal that, that that, that unbelief and belief in Jesus, that, that a refusal to worship God and worshiping God, that those two things at a society level and individually, that those two things don't have to be in conflict, that they can just coexist peaceably. And so we began to understand our life in the world um, as being fundamentally kind of quietly following Jesus in our little corner and then being good citizens within a secular society where God functionally doesn't matter. And then secondly, that's led us to start misreading the Bible everywhere. We think of Jesus as a really nice, kind pacifist. He, his whole ministry was bound up with warfare. 
But it was a particular kind of warfare. That then leads to our second deficiency for much of our discipleship. It's to think and to see conflict at work in the world, but to not see it at the deepest level, to not understand it where it actually lives. So you rightly maybe perceive in the world that there is good and there is evil, but you don't functionally see that at the root of all definitions of good and evil is what you do with God. And so you begin to think that the battle that's to be fought in the world is a political battle. You begin to think that the, the battle that's to be fought in the world is a social battle. You begin to think the battle that's to be fought in the world is a military strategy. You begin to think that the way that good overcomes evil is by the strength of our might. And the problem there is not that you see conflict. You should see conflict everywhere. The problem is that you haven't looked closely enough. And so you haven't understood the nature of that conflict. So first point, there is conflict. You are not at peace in this world. You are at peace with God in Jesus Christ. But you are not safe in a secular age. Let me say that again. You are not safe in a secular age. The fact of that conflict should shape the way you raise your kids, the way you educate your kids. It should shape the way that your family lives its life. It should shape the way that you worship and sing and the kind of church you want to belong to. Um, it should shape your relationships, every single one of your relationships. It should shape the way you watch Netflix. It should shape the way you read books. It should shape everything. Now, second, with whom do we fight and what sort of fight is it? First thing I want to say is don't be a Gnostic. And one of the effects of kind of this secular sort of reasoning has been to, to read this verse, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and over this present darkness, and to think that what that says is, we're not, we, we don't have enemies who are people, we only have enemies who live in another world. That's to misunderstand the cosmology at the heart of Paul's language here. For Paul, the problem is not that there's a spiritual realm over here and there's a physical realm over here and your conflict, your, your, um, your battle does not lay over here but instead it lays kind of somewhere up in your head or in your feelings. That's not the way this is set up. I want you to listen to this language. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The, the fundamental thing that he's articulating here is not to say you don't have flesh and blood enemies. What he's saying is the battle with flesh and blood enemies is not with swords and knives and AR-15s because at the root of this conflict that exists in this age, in this present darkness... It has to do with something much, much larger than the crazy ideas of your neighbor 
or politics or the media or the latest weird Marvel movie, which they're all weird now. At root is this idea that there is a devil, an evil one, and he's wily. I love the King James says the wiles of the devil. The SV is boring. It says schemes of the devil. I like thinking of the wily old devil. This wily old devil stands behind what's described here. Authorities, rulers, cosmic powers over this present darkness. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Um, One way to understand this um, better, to get at it, is Isaiah is, um, in in the book of Isaiah, um, Isaiah is prophesying about the fall of Babylon, the destruction of Babylon. As he describes it, he uses this exact language to describe what happens in Babylon. That the stars will fall from the sky, that the authorities, the rulers, the spiritual forces will fall and collapse. See, when the Bible looks at a thing like Babylon, it sees not just individuals doing evil or believing false things. It sees an entire culture, an entire ideology that's infiltrated with demons, with wickedness, with rebellion against God, with that which would seek to destroy humanity. So when Paul writes to Ephesus and he says, we battle not against flesh and blood. He's saying, look, the, the, the nature of this battle is not fleshy. Like cutting your enemy in two, cutting your neighbor in two, going and killing whatever the principality and ruler is, um, it is not going to win the day because um, what we're waging war against, what we're fighting against is actually much, much larger. So we'll go back to Boniface. Boniface didn't go and kill the priest of the Oak of Jupiter. He didn't go and kill those who were compromising over the... No, he understood that he was called, um, that these people were his enemies, but he was called to love his enemies, to bear witness to the truth, and that his battle was not ultimately going to be won by beating them, but ultimately he would conquer them by destroying their God. That is... Beautiful insight into what Paul is aiming at in this text. And should be terrifying to you. Like this little band of Christians. Like, we couldn't swing an election. Like maybe a a block election. Like if they had an election on the block, see who could be president of the block, we'd lose. Probably. Let alone being able to persuade um, and shape all of culture and all of politics and all of society, right? Like if secularism, unbelief in God and belief in God, they're, they're in conflict and they're at war and we have been sent by God to stand, as he says here, and to wrestle with um, these realities. Uh, like, here's the thing is like, this little band of warriors, like it's not even um, something small like win the block. It is <laughs> the thing that God has called us to, commands us to here is kill the gods. Go to war with them. Like, do, 
you understand the insanity of that? How terrifying that should be. Like when you think of your enemy as merely kind of your neighbor, maybe your neighbor's lame and you think I can, I can beat my neighbor. If I got to beat my neighbor in like a game of wits or theology or philosophy or whatever the thing is, I got it. But that's not what God calls us to. We wrestle, we battle, we wage war against the rulers, the authorities, the principalities, the powers at work in this present age, manifesting themselves in every form um, of, of, of media, every idea that goes, runs, against, runs counter to the will of God, um, every approach to ethics and sexuality that, that runs counter to God. This is what we're fighting. Now last, how do we fight? Um, I, I found this illustration helpful, and so I'll quickly get to it before we run through the armor of God. Um, the way this works is that the battle is never where you think it is. Right? Like you think it has to do with um, winning an election, um, you think it has to do with maybe the trouble that you're encountering that particular day, like your car won't start. But what's surprising about how Paul describes how we wage this massive war is that it always comes down to, always is rooted in your faithfulness before God. And so, moms, maybe tomorrow, you wake up, your husband sleeps past the alarm because he's sick. The kids have decided to lose their minds this morning. Nobody's lunch is packed. You're running late for school. You run out to the car. As you um, pull up the trunk, you hit your head on it. You start crying. Um, and then you get into the car because you've got to rush your kids um, to school. And you've got to get there on time. And you've got to get there on time. And uh, your husbands he didn't even help make the lunches that day. Um, and, and, and then you stick the key in the car and you try to turn the car over and it won't start. And you think in that moment, maybe the battle is, oh Lord, the demons are keeping my car from starting. <laughs> so Lord, go to war for me and start my car. That's not the battle. The battle is actually... Will you in that moment delight yourself in the Lord? Will you in that moment trust that God is good and sovereign? Will you in that moment receive from his hand all the things that he's given you, including your husband's weird flu that's gross um, and the fact that you just hit your head and your car won't start in this moment? Will you trust him and love him and delight in him and continue to honor him and obey him? The kind of war, the means by which we're to fight the war that he describes here is not kind of some highfalutin cultural strategy on how to take over. No, it is a, a basic, genuine faithfulness to everything that God says and who he is. So first he calls us to Stand. That will be the challenge to in the midst of this culture, in the midst of this city, in the midst of Billions of dollars being spent to deceive you, to lie to you, to twist your understanding of the world, to shift your affections, to love what you ought not to love, and to hate that which you ought to love. In the midst of um, 
incredible power, incredible amounts of money, the smartest people on the planet, all working to to cause you to love what you ought not to love and to believe lies about the nature of the world. He calls you to stand. When he calls you to stand, then he calls you to put on the whole armor of God. Um, what, What proceeds now in this text is an Aristia. It's an old Greek literary technique. You find it in the Iliad multiple times where you have this hero called by um, a god and sent into battle by this god. And, and it was kind of like um, in westerns that we watch if you see two streets and you see, uh, you see tumbleweeds kind of floating across the street and everybody clears the street and you got two dudes standing across from each other. Everybody knows what's about to happen. Uh, when this would appear... Um, when this would appear in Greek literature, everybody knew it was about to happen. The divinely empowered hero was about to go and whoop people. So we have one of those happening right here. First, he says um, that we're to be bound up with the belt of truth. It's to bind us together. What is absolutely and fundamentally true is at the center, binding us. We're to bear the breastplate of righteousness. Here is our covenant identity. What shines forth and covers us and defends us at the center is that we belong to God. The shoes of the gospel of peace. That we run everywhere. We are made ready in this world because we know that God has reconciled us to himself the shield of faith, which extinguishes the flaming darts of the evil one. Throughout the scriptures, the devil, the evil one, is portrayed as the accuser. He will bring against you daily, again and again and again and again, accusation, 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 accusation. Those accusations are extinguished. They're blocked. They're put out. They have no power over you. Because you trust in what God has done for you, what God has said of you in the work of Jesus. The helmet of salvation, what sets the trajectory and the direction of you are, um, of where you're headed. What, what, what guards your mind in this age is a hope set on the saving work of God and where you are going. And then the only offensive weapon given to us, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. So in this age, how do we stand? How do we fight? How do we wage war in the midst of all of the principalities and powers and the billions of dollars and the enormous political power and social power all pressed against faithfulness to Jesus? How do you stand? In the power of the Spirit, you wield the word of God. You bind yourself up with truth. You extinguish the assaults, the accusations of the evil one. Trusting in the work of God. You set your mind on the salvation that that has been given to you in Jesus. You find your whole identity in your covenant belonging to God as your covenant Savior and Lord. And you pray. Praying, you pray. And I end here. We prepare to come to this table to receive a meal from God. Take note. The preposition in, in, 
throughout the book of Ephesians is central to all of Paul's argumentation. He says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. This is not a fighting on your own strength. This is not a fighting dependent on your own might. We have been called to stand and to wrestle in utter dependence on the strength of God. To fight in the power of his might. To rest as we stand. As we worship a God and are called to battle by a God who goes to fight for us. The battle indeed truly belongs to him. Let's pray. So, Father, it is your food that strengthens. It's your food that makes us able to stand. It's your strength that makes us able to wrestle with powers too great for us. And so, Lord, in this age and for the sake of our neighbor, even our neighbors who are our enemies, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. You would bind us up with your truth. You would seal us with the breastplate of righteousness that we are yours. You would set our heads towards the salvation that's been given to us. And you would make us those who love your word and wield your word in dependence and alignment with your spirit. And God, that our feet would be bound up ready to spread the gospel of peace everywhere, no matter where we are and where we go. And God, that all of that would be grounded and rooted in the fact that you feed us. In your name we pray, amen.